This is Christine Maxfield, and you're listening to When in Rome from Compass Magazine. Today I'm speaking with Rolf Potts, who is probably best known for his book Vagabonding, an uncommon guide to the art of long-term world travel, which earned him a loyal following of devoted travelers and the distinguished title of Jack Kerouac for the Internet Age from USA Today. Rolf's second book, Marco Polo Didn't Go There, is equally impressive and is a collection of previously published essays and articles with some added juicy details behind some of his adventures. I caught up with Rolf at New York's Hosteling International, where we talked shop about the travel writing world. We've known each other for a while now, but I don't know how you caught the travel bug and how you got into travel writing. So tell me how you first caught that bug that you, you, you know, travel is such a part of your life. Well, I think like many people in my situation, I was born into it. Um, that just when I was five, I assumed that everybody lived for their vacation, you know, that yeah. traveling in the summer was what was the best part of the year. And I grew up in the middle of the country in Kansas, uh, which is not really close to anything, I guess. But yet, you know, I, I would travel with my dad sometimes and sort of see the beauty in a place that isn't usually identified for its beauty. And I just sort of, from the beginning, I was born converted, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, I, that travel was just always an instinctive love. But growing up in the United States, it's not always accepted, you know, to travel for a more long-term period of time. So over the years, my relationship with the possibilities of travel has, has developed. And really, after college, I saved my money to travel the United States for eight months living out of a van, thinking I'll scratch my travel itch, get this off, mm-hmm. get this done with my life. I cannot worry about travel anymore, and then I can live my workaholic life that Americans are born into. Right. Uh, And I just discovered so many things on this trip around the U.S. that it wasn't dangerous, it wasn't hard, it wasn't that expensive. Keeping in mind this gas was 99 cents in 1994. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I realized that it didn't have to be the last trip, that it could be my first trip, you know, my first long-term trip. Mm -hmm. And then it transformed from there. I moved overseas. I ran out of money. I tried to write a book about that experience. It was a failure. I moved overseas to teach English in Korea for several years, which was a key experience, I think. I had some friends who were teaching there, and they found me a job. And just coming to terms with a foreign culture at a visceral way was really important for me, just to understand that culture isn't intellectual, but it's a gut-level thing, and that being in a place forces you to adapt and learn, not through wrote study, but through making mistakes and being a fool sometimes. Right. And so in addition to earning me money to travel through Asia, it really gave me the kind of instincts that made me a better traveler, mm-hmm. you know, to, to sort of be open in such a way that I might make mistakes or I might end up in situations that I wouldn't if I was approaching travel as a consumer. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's sort of the short version of me <laughs> cultivating my travel urge. Isn't that great, this community of travel writers? I mean, so many of us are buddies, and we Mm. keep that in mind, and we help each other out. There's no real ego involved. There shouldn't be. Yeah. I haven't seen very much of it. And I think travel writers are just nicer, for lack of a word, than other creative communities. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're around novelists or artists, there's a little bit of backbiting and and insecurity that rears its head. Whereas I think travelers sort of have to be open to one another and open to other people yep. because you can't be much of a travel writer if you're 
always worried about your ego and as a traveler or you're always worried about being the coolest person in the room right and so it's been fun it's been really rewarding to cultivate friendships with travel writers over the years yeah and they're accessible and just friendly in a unique way which i think is great agreed so no baggage so no baggage yeah (laughs) since i was a kid i was fascinated with the idea of traveling around the world with no luggage or or just (laughs) traveling with no luggage you know why why drag a, a bag full of junk with you when you can just wander the world and what you find is what you experience and maybe you have a toothbrush in your pocket or something and Mm -hmm. that's that and i didn't do it and i didn't do it and i I started to read about other people who were doing the same thing jonathan yevin has been doing it for a while he wrote Mm -hmm. an article for budget travel years ago my roots oh yeah yeah yeah. okay yeah he and and actually justin glow blogged about that for me and and i thought well that was really cool and i realized that other people were doing similar experiences in no baggage travel Uh and then gosh it's been two or three years now uh i got a Actually, I got an email from the Scotty Vest people who were looking for Rick Steves because I interview travel writers every month, and yeah. I interviewed Rick Steves long, a long time ago. Uh, and I said, "Well, this is how you get in touch with Rick Steves." But they they were you know interested in me, maybe me field testing some of their Scotty Vest uh, clothing as well. And I said, "Well, why just do a field test? Why don't we do a round the world trip in this?" And it took some talking, and I got Boots and All, who have been longtime friends with mm-hmm. the Boots and All folks, uh, to co-sponsor the trip. So Scotty Vest gave me the clothes and, and Boots and All gave me the tickets and then hmm. with, with a cameraman I went around the world with just you know a, a tropical jacket with removable sleeves and, and 18 pockets most of which were pretty small that, and it really forced me to be minimal. I had a couple pairs of socks and a couple pairs of underwear and a long huh. sleeve t-shirt, a, a short sleeve t-shirt and it sounds full of potential pitfalls and drama but after a week it just became this really delightfully freeing. Uh, freeing simple way to travel and I yeah. never had to worry about my ba- where my bags were mm-hmm. and I never had to schlep things all over the place if I decided I wanted to kill a couple of hours before a train left a city I didn't have to stow bags or, or guard them in, in, in the train station I could just go wander around uh, and so it was it was really fun and I have not become a full-time no bag traveler but it really made me realize how little you need to bring with you to have a have an awesome time yeah now let's talk about your book Marco Polo didn't go there something I really loved seeing over and over again was the friendships that you developed and I'm thinking in particular about your amazing story of uh, Mr. Benny Mm. can you talk Mm -hmm. about him a little bit and then do you know what happened with him I never did find out found Mm. out what happened with, with Mr. Benny he was my barber when I was living in Renong Thailand which is while I was writing Vagabonding, actually. Hmm. A lot happened, and it's funny. I keep. It felt like all I was doing was writing my book, but I keep coming back. I keep writing about it again and again. I keep realizing that there's all these more stories, or these you know, deeply affecting experiences that happen to me. And I, it, I think it reminds me that travel writing need not just be about motion, that being in a, in a faraway place and, and sitting still can yield stories in its own way. Mm-hmm. But Benny was my barber. He cut my hair. He spoke decent English. And he just lived this amazing life, just a life that would put most North Face-sponsored mountain climbing adventurers to shame. Hmm. He had fought as a teenager with uh, with the Kuomintang army and the you know against the communist Chinese in the north of Burma, and he had been a tin miner, and he had done like deep sea diving for pearls in these like old-fashioned 
20,000 leagues under the sea type suits. It's very dangerous, actually. It's very dangerous, <laughs> yeah. And, and tin mining was extraordinarily dangerous. I don't, like, he was fighting the, the communist Chinese as a 14-year-old. And he, he had just, basically to make ends meet and to pay and to uh, feed his family, had been living in this very adventurous and very dangerous life. He had guided Chinese big game hunters, big game poachers, basically, through the that peninsular area where, where Thailand and, and southern Burma come together, mm. uh, searching for rhinos, for Southeast Asian rhinos. And he was gone for so long that he came back with long hair and a scraggly beard. I mean, if, if, if an American guy lived what Mr. Benny had lived, he would be Indiana Jones, yeah. you know. Uh, and somebody would write a book about him, and Hollywood would give him a contract. But in Thailand, he was just this refugee barber. You and know? it seemed like he wasn't even really offering up the stories. You would ask him, and they'd be like, "Oh, it's not that interesting." Well, well, that's <laughs> right? it. That's it. It was. It was uh, that he didn't. He didn't have this heroic notion of himself. Yeah. That he was. He was this guy who had lived a, a fairly simple and straightforward life. And uh, he appears twice in, he actually becomes the celebrity uh, of my book because he appears in two different chapters mm-hmm. uh, in reverse order because I wrote one chapter about getting to know him and then another one about hearing that he had left and being fairly certain that he wasn't coming back, that he had basically gone home to die. Yeah. And that was, as a travel writer, that w- was this realization. I don't think it was until I had the option of not having Mr. Benny to hang out with and cut my hair that I realized how remarkable he was. Mm-hmm. And so that chapter really really talks about coming up as a travel writer in this world that has its own sub-celebrities and its own things that are deemed important, yet Mr. Benny was so much more mm-hmm. impressive than most of what we we self-mythologize as travel, as travel writers. Yeah. Uh, and so in a way, it's the heart of the book. It really shines a mirror on us as travel writers that there's a reason why we shouldn't get too egoistic because what we're doing might be impressive to our friends and Facebook followers, but mm-hmm. there's so many people who are anonymously living much more adventurous and, and amazing lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Another adventure you talk about is the, uh, was it a Land Rover? Yes. That yeah. you drove with a team. Yes. It was a Land Rover expedition sort of under the umbrella of charity. Uh, and I've, I've written about this again recently. We, it, was, it was driving around the world, actually, but I was the team travel writer for th- the first three months of it. Uh, and it sounds like this adventure of a lifetime. You know, you, you have a convoy of four Land Rovers and a film crew, and you're traveling through, you know, from country to country and having these adventures. But in practice, it was a little bit frustrating because we were driving so quickly and we weren't really experiencing that much. And I, I wouldn't trade the experience. It was, it was fun in its own way. Some of what came up through my writing, but especially in, in my endnotes to, to that chapter, is just how frustrating it was, not mm-hmm. only to be traveling so quickly, but being traveling with people who didn't necessarily value travel in the same way that I did. Mm-hmm. And I think I was a little bit naive because I had assumed that, that a, a journey that goes around the world with the stated intention of adventure and charity is going to do just that but of course it was it was there was an extent to which it was a a PR act you know that any Mm -hmm. any anytime you're you're brought on to be the the writer in residence and there's a film crew and stuff that's that it's sort of a pseudo event and I don't mean that too pejoratively but Daniel Borstein the the sociologist coined the term pseudo event where something is done for the whole for the purpose of being seen Uh and so in a way it was about adventure but it was more it was about being seen having the adventure yeah and my no baggage trip was that way to a certain extent and, I, and there's certain acts of, of travel writing that become pseudo events simply because 
documenting becomes more important than living the experience. Mm-hmm. And so that happened that happened quite a bit to me during the Land Rover expedition. I'd gone in from a very deep experience of vagabonding travel, solo and slow, to a very public form of travel with the Land Rover expedition. And so I think some of the humor and, and some of the frustration, some of the, 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 the turns in writing about that come out of this strangely restrictive way to travel, which is sitting in a vehicle convoy as part of a very public adventure. Yeah, and completely different than the no baggage uh, experience Mm. as far as you had really everything with you, including like a gallon of Listerine or something. That Right, to a a frustrating extent, to a frustrating extent um, that uh, we just had... We were, we were in these expensive vehicles, and, and it allowed people to take really more than they needed and, mm-hmm. and sort of... It's something I touched on in the No Baggage trip, too, is that sometimes what we pack is psychic comfort instead of actually useful on the trip. And so why you would pack the board game Battleship or a half gallon of Listerine or any of the other things that were basically just toys and, and frivolous things for a vehicle expedition is sort of saying, well, I don't really believe in the trip. I don't believe that the world is going to give me something interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, why go and talk to people in Peru when you can play Battleship in your, right. in your Land Rover? It didn't make any sense to me. And, and so that was one of the tensions that I came up against as a writer during that expedition. Mm-hmm. And again, it was an enjoyable experience, and I, I liked the people I was with, but it was just as a traveler and a travel writer, I, I just came up against some, some conflicts as mm-hmm. part of that experience. And that comes out through the story in the end notes. Yeah. So. Is there going to be a new book in the future? There is. There there will be new books in the future, but I don't have enough details to, <laughs> to, to tell you when and, and, and exactly what. I've, right. been, I've been working on a lot of uh, essays about travel and technology and how technology affects the way we travel. Mm-hmm. Technology has always affected the way we travel. When they invented the, the steamship, that changed the way people travel. And, yeah. and when they built roads... You know, through Europe, uh, centuries ago, that affected the way we travel, and so I think this—it's a—it's a conversation within travel that's always happened, but it's accelerated it's recently. Sped up so much now, yeah. I can't keep up with it. Every year, and you know, well, the apps that you have to have, or whatever it is, it's mind blowing, really. It, it is, it is, and it makes travel easier in so many ways, but it makes travel different um, yeah. uh, in some ways, too. And I don't want to be the grumpy old guy who judges the travel world on how he experienced it in 1999, you know. Um, but I do want to, th- through these essays, create a dialogue about what has been gained and what has been lost and what mm-hmm. sort of human textures of the travel experience have changed because so much of technology, metaphorically, the technologies that we take on the road make travel more similar to what we experience at home, mm-hmm. which is fine, and, and, and it makes it easier for people who are a little nervous about travel to travel. But part of one of the gifts of travel is that, that discomfort and, and exactly. the foolishness and the misadventure. <laughs> and so that has been a focus of my essays recently, and I'd like to roll that into a book. I just don't know. I have no news right now on when that's going to come out. But it's, Well, then it's we'll, in, we'll talk again when that's you it. do. All right. Well, and it's amazing because Vagabonding has had 15 printings now. It has, yeah. Is there going to be a 16th? Oh, I'm sure. You know, they, they basically print enough so they don't have to store too many. It's not, it's not like they're printing 100,000 copies every printing, mm-hmm. but it's been an encouragingly evergreen book. Yeah. You know, that, that year after year, there's been an interest and a demand for it. And so it goes through a couple, one or two printings a year. There's this renewed interest in it, which is great. Yeah, you know? it is. Are you ready for your Traveler's 10 Questions? Yes. All right. So your first, 
What travel book makes you want to pack your bags and hop on a plane? Believe it or not, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman, which I read years ago, and then at the end of that eight-month trip I took around the United States when I was 23, I bought a copy of Leaves of Grass in Montana and read it, and it just blew me away, just that, just the optimistic energy and sense of potential that one gets from reading Whitman's poems. And so even though getting on a plane and flying away is not something <laughs> Whitman had as an option, he gets it. You know, he gets that energy there's other books that have been associated with that that just that pure intoxicating possibility of travel including on the road and, and some other ones but nothing gets me quite like leaves of grass I love that yeah. what destination do you consider a best-kept secret who well uh, maybe a couple of years ago I would have said Myanmar but now Myanmar is the is the it destination mm -hmm. I would say I'm gonna waffle on that answer and say any place that's a 15 minute walk from the worst kept secret. <laughs> and I, I think that any place that is a big magnet for tourists is A, gonna be awesome and be kind of overcrowded, especially during high season. Yeah. But I don't like to tolerate people who complain about that overcrowdedness because you don't have to travel very far to get away from a place that's, that's really awesome. Yeah. Uh, and Cusco has its charms. It's sometimes overcrowded. There's so many places in the Cusco area of Peru that are awesome. Mm -hmm. Same for the Eiffel Tower of Paris or Anchor Water, any other place that you would assume is over-traveled. Wander just a little bit and you'll find something awesome. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I'm thinking Grand Canyon, just off of that, Canyon de Chez. Mm. And not as many people know about Canyon de Chez, and I love it so much. You know, I, I, and you know Grand Canyon gets a, a bit crowded, so just yeah. wander a little bit around. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, the Grand Canyon is sort of the South Rim. You know, people go to the South Rim, and that's where right. they have their their pic, their photo op, right? Uh -huh. um, but um, go to the South Rim in, in the dead of the winter and just hike down to the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, I did that in 1994, and it was freezing, but it was uh, it wasn't crowded, and it was its own thing. And so again, that's a place where we're just getting out of your. Have you read any Edward Abbey? No. Uh, you should. He, he's great. He wrote a book called Desert Solitaire, which isn't about the Grand Canyon. Oh, I know of it, but no, yeah. I haven't read it yet. He has a great line that I wouldn't be able to quote, but it's basically, get out of your cars, America, you know, get mm -hmm. off your foam rubber backsides and walk, walk, <laughs> walk upon our blessed earth. Uh, and I think that applies to a place like even at the South Rim. Walk enough to get uncomfortable, truly uncomfortable, and pretty soon you're going to be in a place that's different than what you found on the tr on South Rim. So. Oh, I like that. What site should be seen at least once in a lifetime and why? Ooh, well again, I, I feel tempted to waffle, like the sites should be everything counterintuitive in your backyard, you know, that if I had, if I hadn't have had a biologist for a father, I might have missed out on the wonderful things, the subtle things in Kansas, you know, and Kansas was one of the first places that I wandered. And so there's sites within, I grew up in Wichita, you know, within an hour's uh, radius of Wichita that are just really interesting um, yeah. and it captured my imagination when I was a kid. Do you still have a farm there? I have a farm or I live in the country, farm might be an overstatement, <laughs> uh, near Salina which is 90 minutes north of, of Wichita and is very close to both my sister and my parents. Mm -hmm. And I have a really strong connection to Kansas and, and I think, yeah, my, my curiosity about the world began with a curiosity about my block in Kansas. Mm -hmm. But you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of big cities too, I think New York and, and Paris are great world cities that shouldn't be missed. I love Bangkok and Jerusalem and, and hmm. Buenos Aires and, and other places as well. But maybe not everybody will end up in, in those places. So I say 
find out what's awesome in your backyard and then and then you won't you can't help but go seek mm-hmm. out other places. Well, what and where was the most memorable meal you've had while traveling? I'm always tempted to talk about the times I got food poisoning because yeah. th- those are memorable, it's memorable. In, its, <laughs> in its own way. I actually got um I got cholera in Laos when in, in mm. 1999 or Lao as you travel purists right. like to think. <laughs> um and and that was memorable in this in a very miserable way. I might say that there was the first meals I had when I moved to Korea are memorable at a very hardwired level. Korean food has become my comfort food. Huh. Uh, and I think I would just sort of so out of my element and so emotionally vulnerable when I first moved to Korea in the dead of winter years ago that those that somehow I, I sort of found something sustaining in Korean food and somehow it was it was just enough window into the country to give me a foothold when I was feeling very lonely and very far flung and so ask anybody who hangs out with me for for an amount of time that that I, I, I get Korean food craving sometimes because <laughs> I think of that loneliness that I, that I first experienced in Korea and, and solved with Korean food. You're in a good city to have some yeah. uh, Korean restaurants. Might not be the same as Korea, but it'll have to do maybe well, for Well, right there's now. some, like, like, you know, we can go down to uh, Koreatown in Manhattan yeah. um, and find some amazing stuff. But once I was, I was being photographed, I was, an article had been done about me for Poets and Writers, and I was getting my photo taken in Queens by the airport. And then... We, we, I was wandering around with the photographer and his assistant, and we ended up in Flushing, Queens, where in a, in a neighborhood which I don't even know what it's called, so Korean that um, there was no English on the menus, and so it allowed me to show off and like read the menu cool. for everybody. And the food, the food there, and I wish I had written down what it was, was as, was as amazing as anything I uh, tasted in Korea itself. Oh, that's impressive. And not to knock Koreatown, I, I love going to Koreatown in Manhattan, but there was something just completely it was if i as if i'd been teleported you know back to busan when huh. i was in queens eating nice. korean food yeah what was your most nerve-wracking experience on the road and how could other travelers avoid it i think i know maybe what you might say <laughs> oh well you know i i did get drugged and robbed which right. is a big well, that's chapter what I was in my book <laughs> yeah but the funny thing is, is i didn't know i was being you know, bamboozled at the time and when you get roofied you don't you don't have any memory of the experience hmm. and so what was the question there was what was the wording what was the most nerve-wracking oh, experience yeah. yeah there was nothing nerve-wracking about it because one you were second out I, of it. Yeah, I was out of it and it was nerve-wracking to sort of wander the city of Istanbul and and put my life back together in the, in the days that ensued huh. But it wasn't nerve-wracking in and of itself. A story that I wrote for Salon but didn't make it into Marco Polo, didn't go there, was about taking a little fishing boat down the Mekong River in Mm -hmm. in Laos for uh, 900 miles. And that could be nerve-wracking because the Mekong River is the 12th longest in the world but it has the second biggest flow of water. And in retrospect, I just wonder why I did that because there are so many places that I could have literally died. Yeah. And so that had its nerve-wracking elements, but I think it was it was worth it. I mean, that's there's an extent to which leaving your comfort zone and experiencing nerve-wracking experiences is is worth it. And yeah. so I have a whole collection of, of nerve-wracking experiences, and and some well, actually suffering from cholera in southern Laos. Like I always tell people, Laos is one of my favorite countries, but I I got. Cholera once there, I got malaria another time, and the other time I was in this boat where I could have died in a waterfall. So I don't know, I don't know if again, it goes back to this emotional thing where sometimes where you're most vulnerable, you, you imprint yourself on a place. Right. Nerve-wracking, but totally worth it. Yeah. 
Makes for good stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What passport stamp still eludes you? Ooh, much of like Western and Central Africa. I'm trying to think if, if I boiled it down to one. I mean, Antarctica doesn't have a passport stamp, to my knowledge. Maybe uh, they have a souvenir one. I would still get maybe. that. Maybe. <laughs> I got the Ushuaia one when I was down yeah, in Southern Yeah, I didn't Argentina. get that. I got the Easter Island one. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is it in, do they give it at the, when you go there? Or I had to you go have to, to find, like, some gift shop. That's exactly what it was. Or post office or something. We had to go to a gift shop. Yeah. And which makes me wonder if there might be a, a cottage market in fake passport stamps. You know, totally. If, if people just like getting passport stamps. <laughs> because the Ushuaia or the Easter Ireland one were obviously unofficial. Yeah. I don't know if there's a like a single country that I that I'm just really that I really want to go to. Yeah. I mean for a long time I'd never been to Switzerland, but I, I went there a couple of years ago for the first time. And again, I, that probably comes out from the vagabonding mindset is that I don't just want to go to Ghana, for example, mm-hmm. but I want to go to that part of Africa and, and, and slowly travel through all those parts yeah. of the country. Yeah. I was in Sierra Leone my first stop on my around the world, and mm-hmm. it was so incredible. And I hope that you know terrorism will slow itself down and go away, ideally, because it's a problem. Mali and all, all of right. those countries are so beautiful. and. Mm a bit of a problem right now but worth it so keep that yeah. on your to-do list most definitely uh what is your most cherished souvenir and why probably the propeller the boat propeller from that boat i took down the mekong river the propeller um because we we, we bought the boat in luang prabang and then we drove we were driving it down down the river the cambodian border and we, we kept breaking the propellers. You know, we'd hit sand yeah. or rocks and break the propellers. And so we had all these broken propellers. And I, eventually we realized we ended up like in Poxe or someplace down south. And they sold us this propeller that cost like 20 times as much as all the other ones that we were buying. And we were so frustrated in the here. No, no, that's the right price. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a steel one instead of an aluminum one. And it uh. turned out we'd just been buying cheap propellers. Long way of saying that. Yeah, a broken propeller. You know, I can look at that broken propeller and think of every challenge I had when I was when I was going down yeah. the Mekong. And I think sometimes those souvenirs that that aren't categorized as souvenirs, you know, that they're sort of relics of the trip instead of something that you buy as a piece of art or mm-hmm. or, or something become more memorable. Yeah. Because you you had you had an experience so intense that you have to keep something from it to remind you, you know, of those days that you woke up on a sandbar yeah. in in on the on the Lao Thailand border. So, so. I, I think the most special souvenirs are the ones that you that aren't there to advertise what you did for the people around you, but That's the ones going back to ego again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and nothing against that. I have. Well, I don't know if I necessarily bought my paintings or masks to advertise, but those are different. Those are those are things I got in a market or in, in a gallery. Whereas my propeller are something that only we can look at and really understand. Mm-hmm. It's an internalized thing. Yeah. What's the most interesting customer tradition you discovered abroad, and did you bring it back home? Uh, I know that for years after traveling in the Arab world, I would say inshallah, which just means God willing, yeah. which basically says that, well, you know, hopefully, or if everything turns out okay, it's basically, mm-hmm. it's this nice little um, verbal gesture of humility that says, okay, well, I'm going to try this, mm-hmm. and inshallah, you know, it'll it'll work out. And so... That is probably the an enduring thing 
I don't know if it's a custom, really. Well, it is a custom. I, I guess it's, so. a, it's a linguistic custom. Also, like shaking hands and touching heart afterwards. Yeah. I loved that. I used to do that, and then I realized people didn't know what I was doing, so I stopped. But right. it's beautiful. But it's addictive. You know, you go to mm-hmm. that part of the world, and people will touch their heart after shaking hands, and it's like, oh, my God, what that makes so much sense. Yeah. Why, why don't we do the same thing? And then, then there is something inherently, I don't know, I, I just love Inshallah. It, it, it's, a, it's sort of a humble ritual, a ritual of humility, you know, mm-hmm. that reminds you, uh, regardless of how religious or spiritual you are, you know, it reminds you of, of your um, relativity to the rest of the world. So. You should bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> What's your biggest piece of advice for aspiring travelers? For aspiring travelers? Mm-hmm. Do it. And not only do it, I'm not going to knock your one to two week vacation, but I think sometimes people sort of lock themselves inside of the the, the short vacation because mm-hmm. they're really nervous about open-ended or longer or slower travel. And so the best way out of that is to just sort of break out of it as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, stop putting stop putting your dream trip off. And even if you if your dream trip is is 8 months through South America and you can't do it, then take 3 weeks and and road trip through the American West or something. Just Break through those the limitations that you put on your travels so far, and you'll realize the potential that travel has, and you'll yeah. realize its relative safeness and inexpensiveness. It's just like that first trip that I took that I thought would be my last big trip, but it ended up being my first big trip because just through the act of doing it, I understood in a way that couldn't have come through research that it was easy and doable and accessible. So I love that. And what's the most profound lesson you've learned around the world? Probably that seeing something or experiencing something or smelling something lends itself to a kind of understanding that is not possible through mediated experience. Mm-hmm. You know, people often say these days that the internet has shrunk the world and on life, social media has made every place accessible. Including um, Mars. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. And I can see why people say that, but there's no, even if, even if they invent the special scent app you know, that you can press and see what Mars smells like. There's no excuse for being in a place and, and smelling it or seeing it mm-hmm. or, or, or giving yourself one, uh, giving oneself over to the random experience of a place. Mm-hmm. And if there's one danger in this newly convenient technological world we're in, that it, it, it reduces us to being consumers of, exp- of an experience in, in that we know exactly what we're going to get, and then we go there and we try to fulfill it exactly, and then mm-hmm. we're going to be mad if we don't get exactly what we thought we were going to get. Well, that's sort of this con- consumer thing. I mean, what, why? Who cares if everything goes wrong? I mean, that's that's the way the world works, you know. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how we alter our Instagram photos, you know, yeah. that the, the real life experience is is not as self-contained as it was. And so, really, just just I think the lesson of just being present in a place and 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 uh, being subject to everything around you is the best education and the best way to just expand your way of knowing the world from sort of an intellectualized way to a much more internalized and and visceral way. So That's really great. Well, Ralph, thank you so much for talking to me, and uh, we'll talk again when your new book comes out, whenever that shall be. Inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. I look forward to it. Great. As you've probably guessed by now, it's a little hard to pin down Rolf, 
but do try to keep an eye out for one of his travel writing courses or lectures that will be listed on his website at rolfpotts.com or on Twitter. Rolf was the 2011-2012 Writer-in-Residence at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's currently lecturing at Yale. But if you are fortunate enough to be in France this July 1st through 28th, make sure to check out one of his classes at the Paris American Academy, where he's been the writing workshop director since 2005. Thanks for listening, and until next time, get out there and set the world on fire.